Hey friends, welcome back to the No Wrong Turns podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Audrey Hickman-Hunter. The No Wrong Turns podcast talks to people about their story and their passions. It aims to see how their passions have evolved and grown throughout their story. Hey friends, how are you all doing? For myself, between the the last podcast and now, I've been working on finding better ways to keep myself informed and learning. As a part of this, I've added a few new podcasts to my list. One that I have really enjoyed listening to, my husband actually recommended to me, is called The Breakfast Club. This is a daily podcast, a daily morning show that comes out as a podcast form as well, which is how I clearly listen to it. And so far, my favorite episode came from last week on Tuesday, where the three hosts did an interview with Jon Stewart. They had a candid conversation about political accountability and systemic racism. What are some helpful podcasts or news sources of information that you have all been finding? Come find us over on our social media pages to share what news sources and places that you've been learning. Hey friends, I wanted to thank you so much for giving the No Wrong Turns pod a listen. Can you consider helping us out and leaving a rating and review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or YouTube? Basically, whichever platform you're listening to this podcast right now. This really helps other people to be able to see the podcast when they're searching the podcast app. Thanks in advance for your help. Hey listeners, welcome to our 17th episode. Today on the podcast, we have my friend Lindsay Bailey with us on the pod. I am thinking that I must have met Lindsay sometime in my late middle school, early high school years. Lindsay was a part of the Band of Survivors, the BOS 2006 crew that I've had on the podcast several times so far. Those were episodes 8 with DeAndre Coates, episode 11 with Nate Irvin, and episode 13 with Alex Escobar. Lindsay and I both share a love for dancing, and she's often one of the first on my text list when I'm looking to go out for some Latin dancing at some of our favorite local Chicago places. Shout out to you, Nacional 27 and Dylan's. We can't wait till we can go back. In this episode, Lindsay shares about her childhood growing up in Chile and then returning to the States as a high schooler, then navigating and discerning what her true passions are and what major would fit her passions the best, then finding some job opportunities in Chicago and beyond, and even making the big decision of going back to grad school to pursue a master's in social work. You are for sure going to want to lean in and not miss hearing about how Lindsay pursued her passions and her journey. No matter if this is your story and you can relate to her or not, I believe that there's definitely something in this episode for you. All right, here's my conversation with Lindsay. Welcome to the No Wrong Turns podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Lindsay Bailey. Hey, Lindsay. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and maybe some fun facts so we can get to know you a little bit better. Absolutely. So like you said, my name is Lindsay. I'm 35 years old and I live in Chicago. 
I um, was born in Detroit, um, Michigan, but I've never lived there. So that's a fun fact about me. So you uh, just born and then you left. Yes, that is. I had a very short time there. I wanted to go back, but um, haven't had the chance to do that yet. And let's see some other fun facts about me. I love to dance. I am bilingual. I speak both English and Spanish. And I don't have any pets. <laughs> Something that most people have a hard time believing about me. If you could have a pet, what would your pet choice be? That is a great question. I don't think I know <laughs> because I honestly don't think I want a pet ever, which most people think I'm a horrible human for saying, but I, I think it's just the responsibility aspect of it that really I can't, I can't. clean it up all that poop. No, <laughs> I love my social life too much to, to be in charge of a pet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like a child. You got to get home like right after work to like let him out or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. So can you kind of walk us through your kind of childhood and your growing up years? You said, you know, you you only were born in Detroit, but you, I know, moved around a couple of different places. But can you let us know a little bit about your childhood? Absolutely. So I was born in the United States in Detroit, like I said, but my family moved to Chicago shortly after that. And I lived the first couple of years of my life in Chicago. But when I was three years old, my family moved to Chile in South America. And we lived there for 13 years. So I lived there till I was about 16 years old, a sophomore in high school. And after that, we returned to the United States and relocated to the Chicago suburbs. And I lived there um, for several years before I then moved on to college and and on to my adult years. Awesome. Can you tell us anything fun about your childhood growing up in Chile? I could. I could tell you lots of different things. Um, I think I... It really, it doesn't... Nothing stands out to me just because I think of, you know, childhoods are our childhoods and no matter where you are, but I really, I appreciated that the fact that I, growing up, I never, I didn't realize I wasn't from Chile till I was a lot older. I, <laughs> I always thought that that was just where we had lived our whole lives and where we would live for the rest of our lives. And it wasn't until we started to, we would come back to the United States um, and visit family and, and, and be here for a couple months, but we would only do that every three or four years, depending. And so it wasn't until I was old enough and started realizing why we were coming back to the United States and actually that this is where I, I had been born and this is where my family lived <laughs> and um, that I actually wasn't, you know, just like my, my, all my friends um, growing up. So I, that's just something I I think back um, I think back on and and I'm really grateful for because I think it it makes me realize how much a a part of I felt a part of the culture a part of uh, people's lives part of people's families that weren't blood related but that really felt that way wow I could definitely see that just kind of like connection of just being in a place that you've known your whole life and Mm -hmm. being a part of it that's awesome Mm mm-hmm so you said you came back to the Chicago suburbs when you were starting sophomore year or during your sophomore year? 
It was, I had finished my sophomore year in Chile and I thought I would be starting my junior year, but something really wonderful happened, which was that because the education systems are so different, once I arrived in uh, Chicago and they saw my transcripts, they said, actually, you only need to do one more year of high school to graduate. So I was able to do my junior and senior year together which it was a great thing because I was dreading being in high school in the United States, was extremely scared. Uh, but the, um, so the pro was that it went by fast, but the con was that I was the only senior in driver's ed. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was something that I had never taken, I hadn't been exposed to, and I hadn't had the opportunity or the chance to learn how to drive. And, and so I definitely needed to do that. But yeah, that was a, a really a, a great way to transition back to the United States was to, to be able to be in high school, but to not have to be there too long and then be able to move on. So then were you only in high school for three years? That's right. Yes. Mm, nice. I took a year uh, off after and didn't go straight into college. But uh, yeah, just three years of high school. So when you were in your three short years of high school and your year off, what were you thinking you were interested in uh, pursuing for your job or for were you thinking you were going to go to college or were you wanting to just start working right away? I when I think back, I, I remember knowing that I wanted that I would go to college. I don't know if I would say that I wanted to go to college, but <laughs> it was one of those things that you just heard about and that you figured had to happen. Uh, but I do remember specifically wanting to take that year off and not going straight to college specifically because I didn't feel ready for that. Uh, I wasn't uh, growing up in Chile. Um, the, it's not typical for people to for college students to move out of their house. You usually stay home and you commute to your university. Not a lot of people. The, the concept of living at your university doesn't happen. So when I moved here and then high school was done before we thought it would be, I just couldn't see myself moving away and, and starting kind of life on my own, especially since I was so new to living here. So I really, mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to go to college, but I knew I wasn't ready to move out or move away or make that kind of decision as to what I wanted to, to study. So I remember thinking I want to do something that will allow me to be around people. I'm a very social person. And I remember thinking I want to work with people, but I don't know how. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any um, like sports or I don't know, like clubs or like that kind of thing that you were in in high school or interested in? I was in in Chile, actually in Santiago, where I lived. I was really involved in uh, sports teams. I played field hockey and I play, played volleyball and did a lot of um, activities um, with church outside of school. But yeah, in my short time of high school in the United States, I didn't really join any specific groups. I was really involved in youth group at church, and that's where most of my friends were and where I spent most of my time. So again, I knew just having grown up too, my, my parents are both uh, pastors in the Salvation Army, and that's the reason why we lived in Chile for so long. And so I think that was a big influence for me in terms of knowing that I wanted to do work that would, would involve being around people, just because mm -hmm. my parents had both been in ministry, our whole family had been in ministry for so long. So that was something that I knew, but um, didn't have the details quite figured out. Gotcha. 
So um, you knew that you wanted to be around people and that was something that you were really interested in. Um, so how did you, in, I'm guessing um, when you exited high school, did you, had you already had uh, applied to colleges or were you thinking about saving that for your gap year to kind of figure out what you're going to do next? I saved it for my gap year. I I did go to a community college during that year off and took just some elective courses just to kind of get some ideas as to what I might be interested in. Mm-hmm. And then during that year is when I applied to colleges. But I, I knew that I didn't want to go too far, I think for the same reason that I wasn't really ready to really move away. So I I had my uh, sights set on Olivet Nazarene University. And that's where I ended up going. Awesome. And so you moved there and that's a little bit south of Chicago. So still close, but not that close. That's right. That's right. And that, and it actually was really interesting because I wanted to be close enough to, to come home every once in a while. But then during my sophomore year of college, I found out that my parents were moving to Spain. So <laughs> even though I had made that effort, I was like, oh, I want to be close to home. My parents ended up getting transferred and, and moving away. And so in the end, um, I think that that really propelled me into this more of an independent lifestyle and um, actually into being adopted by several families from our church to that I could go home and stay with during breaks and things like that. But that was a, an interesting turn of events. <laughs> <laughs> So when in your time, when you entered into Olivet, what was your major or did you not have to have one like declared? I did. And I actually had declared communications as my major. Again, just knowing that I I knew that that would include working with people and around people. But I don't think I even had a a real understanding of what that meant, uh, of what kind of a job that could lead me to. I remember seeing that there was a class with the name of uh, cross-cultural communication. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. I want to learn about that. And that's, I think, why I even went in that direction. (laughs) That's funny. So then what happened after you went in with that major? What were, can you walk us through how you kind of found your your final major or what you you landed on? Yeah. So it was actually during my sophomore year of college, I decided to study abroad and I was living in San Jose, Costa Rica, and I was there for four months. And during my time there, I was part of a program that's called the Latin American Studies Program. And I went into that program knowing I went because I was also, I had chosen Spanish as one of my majors, mostly because I already knew the language (laughs) and you had to, studying abroad was part of that. So I went on the study abroad program for my Spanish major, but what was really cool was that throughout the experiences um, that I had in Costa Rica and that I had through this program is uh, how I came to realize that I really wanted to be a social worker. And so that, it was after that experience, um, the program was centered around understanding current events uh, as well as historical events uh, and the relationship between the United States and various Latin American countries. And so part of the growing and part of the learning was meeting with different nonprofit organizations and uh, some churches and some 
uh, just individuals who were involved in community life. And it was through those relationships and through kind of hearing those people's stories and seeing the work that those people were doing in various neighborhoods uh, that I, I came to realize that I really wanted to be a part of something like that. And during the, those four months, it, it was a, a life-changing experience. We, we got to visit various countries in Latin America. I got to spend time in Guatemala and Nicaragua and in Cuba. And throughout all of those locations, what really I connected with were, were people who were working in communities, building relationships with people in communities, and and seeing people's lives changed um, through the work that they were doing. And, and that I remember at the I was exactly where I was when I realized, you know what, I, I don't know what communications majors do, and I want to do <laughs> what I'm seeing, and I, and I decided that I would come back and change my major, and I would get my bachelor's degree in social work. Gotcha. So you came back to college after study abroad, and then just had a couple more years, and what year did you graduate in? I graduated in 2007. 2007. Mm-hmm. Wow, so long ago. <laughs> it was a long time ago. <laughs> you are right. That's when I graduated high school. Oh, man. <laughs> that December. Oh, man. Yes, there you go. I have been, I have been doing this for a while now. <laughs> so as you were coming to a, uh, a close for your college time, and you had your bachelor's of social work, and you said you made was it is it bachelor's of Spanish? Uh, yeah, I guess I had a double major, so I'm yeah. not sure really how that worked, but yeah, I graduated with a degree in social work and a degree in Spanish. Um, and so, yeah, the social work degree is called the BSW and, um, you're able to practice social work with a bachelor's degree. And, uh, I, I, that's what I did. A lot of people go straight through and, and get their master's in social work, but I actually decided to work for about seven years in the field of social work prior to going back to getting my master's in, in social work. And, and that was a whole process too, to, to figure that out. So can you explain to us, because you kind of just alluded to it right now, because I think I've heard, at least to myself, that I've, I've been told that if you are going to uh, major in social work in your undergrad, you will, you'll definitely have to get a master's. And the way that I, I feel like it's been like mm-hmm. said or communicated is that you wouldn't really be able to find work with just a bachelor's of social work. So can you kind of explain the different levels? Sure. I, I definitely, I have heard that, but I, I guess my experience was not that. And I do believe that there are jobs and there is work out there for people who have a bachelor's in social work. Now, the biggest difference might be the salary that you make with a bachelor's degree as opposed to a master's degree and the type of responsibilities that you might get. But uh, even in my current work right now, I work alongside people who have a master's in social work and people who have a bachelor's and they have different responsibilities and you're able to get different licenses depending on what state you live in. So there's a a difference in terms of the amount of responsibility that you have in your job and like I said, in the amount that you get paid. But there definitely are are jobs out there that require and that would, um, that a bachelor's in social work would, would suffice. Okay. That's good to know. Mm-hmm. I feel like, like I said, because I've just heard that you'll, oh, you'll have to definitely get your master's and get that right away. So, yeah. Um, 
I do think that it, it depends on what type of social work you want to do too. And, and there are various tracks that you can take. And the, the truth is that when you get your bachelor's, most programs are, are called generalist practiced uh, practice uh, programs, which just means you're going to learn a little bit of everything of what social work entails. When mm-hmm. people get their master's is when they get more specific into the concentration and the field that they want to practice in. So you might decide you want to work with children and families, or you might want to work in schools, or you might want to work in community doing more what we call macro level work, which is uh, looking at systems and uh, advocating for change on different policies and access to services. Uh, Or you might want to do what I ended up choosing, which was mental health. So specifically learning um, how to provide mental health counseling services and, and that I that you do need a master's degree for, and you do need a license, a clinical license to practice. And so I think it's, it's, um, it's a matter of if you know, at that point, what you want to specify in, then a lot of people just go straight through into the master's program. But I didn't really know what I wanted to specify in. I just knew that I wanted to do social work when I graduated with my undergrad. Gotcha. So can you kind of walk us through, you just mentioned that you had seven years from when you graduated until when you started your master's. So can you kind of walk us through what life was like for you, what kind of jobs you had and that kind of thing? Yeah. So when I graduated, my first job out of undergrad was working for a a nonprofit in Chicago that at the time had just opened a children's home. And this children's home was for unaccompanied minors. Uh, And what that means is uh, children or um, people under the age of 18 that cross into the United States without a parent or a guardian. And when they cross, they're stopped by border patrol or by immigration and customs enforcement. And they are sent to these homes where they, they have to stay while they wait for their court date um, to come. And so this home had recently opened in Chicago and I, I took a job as what they called a family reunification specialist. And what that meant was I was working to try to get the children out of this home because although it was, um, they sell it as this is a home, I I have now come to learn and understand that it's really a detention center. Uh, The children can't leave. Um, They they have to stay there. And so my role was to try to get them out of the detention center and into a home with some family member or a, a close family friend where they could be safe and cared for and not in this environment that was so um really oppressive and so that was that was my job and so I we had to find family members and make sure that these family members were safe enough for for the children to be uh, released to to make sure that they weren't gonna take advantage of the children or traffic them or do anything um, that would that could be harmful to them so there was a huge process that had to happen to prove all that and that was my my role was to make sure that we were releasing the children to people who who would take care of them wow that's a lot of responsibility and like detective work (laughs) it was it was that job was a really short lived though because what happened was and and this kind of I share this because I think it resonates with what we're going through as as a country nowadays too but at that time so that was 2007 2008 there had been an increase in the number of unaccompanied minors who were crossing into the United States and from all over the world and so this nonprofit um, had already won 
um, home or detention center in the Chicagoland area, and they opened two or three more within that same year. So they needed to staff these these homes, and that's why and how I got my job. But then they realized, you know, that the, those numbers eventually came down and mm-hmm. that they didn't need that many homes in the same city. And so they ended up closing up the home that I worked at and um, and sending the children to, to other locations. And so it was only about, I think, three months that I was oh, wow. there. And it was it was really short, but looking and I was I remember feeling sad about it, but looking back on it and now understanding what was happening, I'm actually really grateful that I didn't stay there for that long because I I don't actually agree with putting children in detention centers. And I just I didn't realize at the time. I mean, I was so young and really naive and not understanding what was happening. I just knew that I would get to work with people who had come from all over the world. And and that was an experience that I could relate to, although I had a very different experience uh, in terms of migrating and moving from one culture to another. Um, I knew that I'd be working with people who were coming from different places. And so um, that's what attracted me to the job. And and, and it was true. I mean, there were kids from uh, China and India and Mongolia and Honduras and El Salvador and all over Poland, Togo, all over the world, children who migrate here and who come into the country either trying to find their family members um, or, or under other circumstances, too. Wow. That's really intense. And that's like so many other countries that I feel like usually... We're, especially nowadays, it's like so concentrated on thinking of like Central or, or like South America. Mm-hmm. Um, but just all the countries you named were literally just like all, all, all over the globe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, listeners. Today's sponsor of the podcast is Figs Jewelry. I found today's sponsor through our podcast editor, Sophia, when she had reposted uh, her friend's new jewelry collection. Isabella, the creator behind Figs Jewelry, started with creating earrings from materials and wiring them into original styles and shapes. Isabella says that she's always been interested in jewelry and has always been a naturally crafty person. When the quarantine began, she was looking for something to keep herself occupied. Because of the extra time in the quarantine, she had the time to find this new hobby of jewelry making. Right now, Isabella has several different earring styles created and available for purchase through her Instagram. She's also branching out into necklaces. I was able to try out some simple dainty um, drop earrings that went well with some office outfits and some hanging at home outfits pictures to come soon of how I style them will be on our No Wrong Turn social media page soon. Right now, the best way to peruse and purchase is for you to check out Isabella's Instagram at figs.jewelry. That is at F-I-G-S dot J-E-W-E-L-R-Y. Thanks for supporting the No Wrong Turns pod. All right, back to Lindsay's story. So what was your what was your next step after that? 
I worked for a nonprofit that worked uh, within the school district. Um, actually, this was also in in the suburbs in Villa Park, and I this nonprofit uh, was located within a school, and my role was it's called Family Worker, and it was a, a Head Start program, so a program that is for children up to five years of age, and um, my role was to connect with these children's families and to do home visits and um, go see where people um, lived and meet with them in their homes and try to connect them to resources in the community that they might need or or want to be connected to. And so um, the the really the cool thing about this job and the reason I really wanted it was because specifically in that area and in that neighborhood, most of the families who were enrolled in the Head Start program were immigrant families and so primarily from Mexico as well as various countries in the in the Middle East a lot of families had migrated and and relocated into that um, area of the suburbs and their children were part of these programs and so I got to work with uh, moms and dads and, and family members of of these children who were part of the program and um, so I, I get again little by little I started realizing you know what if social work is what I want to do. It's, it's actually very specific to, I want to work in and with people who have had the experience of having to migrate and having to move from one place to another. Um, that's, that's really kind of what I started to realize as I took these jobs, the jobs that looked interesting to me, that I would interview for, that I really felt connected to, I started seeing this pattern. And so um, I didn't know that going in or after graduation, but it, it kind of revealed itself as I applied for jobs and got jobs and, and got the job experience. Wow. So mm-hmm. how long were you in that position? I was in that position for about a year. And that was um, just a year because I had made a decision at that point that I wanted to actually move back to Chile. So that was um, a time in my life where I really was feeling um, that I wanted to go back to this place that I had known for so long and that I, where I had lived for so long and that I, I felt like I needed to go back and go back and possibly leave on my own terms and mm-hmm. um, in my own way. And I, so I started to make plans to, to move back and go there. And so part of that then included me being able to go to Washington, D.C. for what was supposed to be three months to cover for somebody's maternity leave at uh, the Salvation Army World Service uh, Organization, or SOSO. And they, um, I was only meant to be there for three months as, as I was do- getting all my paperwork ready, my visa to go back to Chile. And then actually at the end of those three months, I found out that, um, well, they offered me the job. They offered me to stay full time in this position, which was really surprising for me at the time. And I also had found out that, um, so my parents were living in Chile at the time, and that was going to be a really, uh, a key part of me being able to go there without a job and being able to yeah. live with them while I figured out a job. And so they were moved and they were no longer going to be in Chile. And so that really, that was a really hard time and a really hard decision for me to make. Um, after I'd gotten my visa, after I'd gotten all these different things figured out, I, I ended up deciding to stay in Washington, D.C. and and not to move back. So um, three years in D.C. actually, uh, three months, I'm sorry, turned into three years. And and I worked there as a, um, as the anti-human trafficking program um, 
manager, I think was my position. I'm not, I don't remember exactly the name, but um, yeah, helping to get funds for anti-human trafficking projects um, that the Salvation Army would, was putting into action uh, around the world. So it was a really great opportunity and a, and a um, position that allowed me to see uh, a larger side of social work or international social work and being able to see what um, international community development work looked like and understanding funding structures and how uh, different programs get funded to do different things. And it was a really an amazing experience, um, but definitely something that I, I didn't realize I was going to um, get to do for as long as I did. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of neat because you kind of got to see on the micro level of social work of like more of the um, face to face with um, actual people. But then you also got the experience on the kind of like the macro level of more uh, like logistics and behind the scenes workings. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and I was really grateful for that um, to, to be able to see that and to get exposed to that work. And it was a really important time in my life where through that work, actually, I, I, I feel is how I returned to eventually making my, up my mind about wanting a master's in social work and specifically wanting to work in the mental health field. It was because of that time uh, doing that work and seeing what that entailed and understanding it and appreciating it. But that's really what kind of brought me full circle back to social work. So then, um, but you, did you still have a little bit of time from once you finished that job to when you started, um, your master's program or did that equal up to seven years? I think I had one more year. (laughs) Um, and I, I added the one more year because I wanted to get my master's in social work here in Chicago. I wanted to move back to Chicago and get in-state tuition at the University of Illinois at Chicago, Jane Addams College College of Social Work. And so I worked for a year um, as a um, case manager for the Stop It program, which is part of the Salvation Army's work here in the Chicagoland area, where they work with survivors of human trafficking. And so I did that work um, in order to again, get my residency established and being able to go back to to school. Awesome. So you started at at UIC. And uh, how long did your social work? uh, What's the word? How long did your social work uh, schooling last? It was actually to get my master's, it was only a year. And that was because I have uh, had an undergraduate degree in, in social work. And um, right now, I think the rules have changed. So I think now it has to be within five years of your getting your undergraduate degree, you can get your master's in one year. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time at UIC, I could do it within the seven years. And so I was right on the cutoff and I did it. And I was so grateful <laughs> that that uh, was only a year, a year long program. Wow, that's awesome. So then as when you were getting your master's, were you also working at the same time or were you just working on the schooling part? 
So I went full-time. I did the full-time program, which is why I was able to do it in just a year. So I wasn't working, but part of getting your master's in social work includes you doing what they call the field placement. So I would go to class two days a week, and I would go to a a location to work three days a week. So it it was like you're working, but you're not getting paid. You're just getting paid an experience, um, which is, <laughs> is which is actually very valuable. Um, but yeah, that that's how how that worked. And um, I had already decided at that point that I wanted to do that. I wanted to be in the mental health field. And and the way I got to that decision was I had been involved in the anti-human trafficking field for the previous four or five years. And um, that work was extremely rewarding. And and I learned so much. Um, What what I really took from that was that when working with survivors of trafficking, but then with people in general, is you can connect them to as many resources as they need. But if their mental health and their mental well-being isn't in, in, a, in a good place, it's going to be really hard to, to truly benefit from the connections that you're giving them maybe to educational resources or medical resources or other types of resources. And so I, I just saw the importance of being able to provide spaces for people to heal from traumatic experiences in their life. And that's really what inspired me to want to declare or to get my master's in social work specifically with the mental health concentration. Awesome. So when you finished did you know what you were going to do next? I mean, obviously it was in social work, but mm-hmm. I mean, specifically, did you kind of have an idea of where you wanted to go or does the school kind of like walk you through steps of like what's next and kind of ideas of, I don't know, where to apply and that kind of thing? Yeah. So I, again, was really, really um, lucky, or maybe I should say privileged um, to be able to get connected and be able to stay and get a job at the same location where I was doing my field placement. So I did my field placement actually at the same location where I currently work. And that is at St. Anthony Hospital, the community wellness program. That's what it's called. And I did my field placement there because it specifically said that um, you'd be able, that the program offered mental health services for uninsured Spanish speaking adults. And so when I saw that description and when I was picking my field placement, I just knew I connected with it immediately. Mm -hmm. Again, because at this point, it just felt like the combination of all the different things that I had been doing as a social worker uh, up until that point. I knew that I, if I was going to live in the United States and I was going to stay here, I knew that I would want to work alongside and be in relationship with people who had migrated here from other places. And again, just because that connected really to my story and to my experience. And I knew that I wanted to use my Spanish and that I didn't want to lose that and that I wanted to be able to support people in in feeling better and in being able to talk about their stories and being able to be heard and be seen. And, and so this place was just the combination of all of that. And so it was a really uh, wonderful opportunity. There were a very small program when I did my field placement here, but at the end of my field placement, um, through actually the work and the advocacy of various community leaders in the neighborhood where our organization works, 
thanks to them, I was able to get a job because they advocated for more positions because they saw the need in their community and they went to our hospital CEO at the time and said, you know what, there's all these people in our neighborhood and in our community who want these services and, and we want you to expand these services. And the Aww. CEO said yes. And so I, w- I was really lucky to be here at that time and to be offered the position to to stay and to continue to do the work that I had learned how to do uh, and about during my field placement. Wow, that's awesome. So can you kind of give us, I know you've kind of talked about like more like broad strokes, but could you just give us maybe just kind of maybe like a a day in the life of, or maybe like a week in the life of, because I'm sure every day is not the same, but Mm -hmm. just kind of in general, like what your position entails. Absolutely. So I'm a licensed clinical social worker and my position includes offering direct services or uh, mental health counseling services to individuals, to couples and to groups. And then it also includes clinically supervising uh, different clinicians um, that are part of the program as well who are doing the same work. And so I, throughout the week, I go to different locations. Our program is very community-based, so we're not located within the hospital, but we are located within various community organizations and locations to make our services accessible to people in the Chicagoland area. And so I go to various locations and I meet with people and I offer individual counseling sessions or couples or group sessions. And what that looks like a lot of times is listening and getting to know people, listening, hearing their stories and being able to identify parts of their life stories that have um, maybe been painful or difficult or being able to identify traumatic experiences in their lives that are causing some concerns for them in their in their present lives or or in the present time and being able to to see people uh, heal from those experiences and people be able to be um, supported in in being able to to talk about experiences that they haven't had the chance many have not had the chance to ever talk about before so our program is is one of the only programs in Chicago that offers offers services for free to uninsured and underinsured individuals and there are very very few other programs that offer this service and so we have a very long waiting list we have a lot of people interested in our services and so it has been it has been such a joy and and a privilege for me to do this work to be able to to come alongside people and learn from people's stories and and be able to support people as they get to know themselves better and as they get to heal from certain experiences and, and get to really find their voice and, and tell their story in, in, new, in new ways. So let's just pivot for a minute here. Um, I'm curious um, because social work, uh, I hear a lot about this, especially I remember in high school, that was a major that I was interested in, but my counselor kind of steered me away from that. Mm. But can you tell us any myths that you, you kind of already debunked one for me about not needing to go get your master's right after that there are jobs available, but do you have any other myths that social workers that you hear about social work? Um, or social workers that you can debunk for us t- today? Sure. I. This is one that I think I'm still in the midst of 
of debunking um, that I haven't <laughs> totally figured out. But uh, something that you often hear is, oh, you shouldn't be a social worker because you, you won't make any money. And I, I can attest to that not being true. I've been <laughs> a social worker for 12 years now. I've been a clinical social worker for the last three. And um, I definitely have had, um, I've had a lot of opportunities for for jobs and for growth. But I, I guess I, I have to say that I, I believe you can live a life and you can afford a life while doing this work. I should also say I'm not married. I don't have children. And so that definitely helps in terms of how many mouths you're trying to feed. Mm-hmm. But I... No I, pets. No pets. But I do believe that you can you can get access to various types of jobs within the social work field and you can, you can make ends meet and you can have a a great life. I actually, a lot of my mentors in the field and that I have been in the field for much longer than I have, um, enjoy really comfortable lifestyles and, and they get to do the work that they love to do. And, and that's because the skills that you learn as learn as a social worker can really be applied in so many different um, areas. But I, I have to be honest in saying that I, I believe that my experience also is the way it is because I do hold a lot of privilege as a white woman. I, I hold a lot of privilege as, as somebody who um, is knows two languages and who had access to education and to resources to pursue an education. Um, somebody who also had a lot of access to jobs that were connected to an organization that I, I've been a part of and that I've benefited from being a part of. And so I, I say that because I, I don't want to uh, just assume that because I had that experience, everybody else will. I do believe mm-hmm. You do need, I think, being connected and having different um, resources is definitely needed as well. But I, I do believe you can make a living and you can and you can afford a life while being a social worker. So I, I encourage people to to pursue the to pursue it even even when you hear that that you don't make a lot of money. Awesome! Thank you for debunking that for us. What would you say would be one of the most common or maybe most common reason for people to either fail or I don't know if that's too harsh or give up the social work. I would say that the the idea of people getting burnt out and people not people needing to, to just leave the field because they are struggling with secondary trauma or with compassion fatigue or with burnout, I think that those are all uh, real things that can happen and do happen. And um, I believe it's something you have to be really careful about and you have to be proactive in making sure doesn't happen. And there are a few things that you can do personally to ensure that. But I think also choosing and being able to work in a, in a place that values you caring for yourself while still doing a really good job in social work is also really key for that. Um, having a place where they will be respectful of your boundaries or where you'll be able to take the time off that you need, um, being able to, to, to decide your schedule and, and being able to 
um, to be supported. Uh, a huge component of social work is having what we call supervision or having weekly meetings with somebody who has been in the field for longer than you have, who you can tell about your work and you can talk about your work and you can be encouraged in your work. That to me has been, it, it is key in, in being able to continue doing this work and not getting burnt out. That That's really good to hear. I think that's really true. Um, Lately, I've been hearing a lot of people or seeing people post like on their like social medias about this idea of burnout, just not even just in social work, but just Mm -hmm. in kind of in multiple uh, professions and just the importance of I think what I like what I hear like a common thread is coming down to what you said as well of like having like good boundaries and that's kind of just what I heard you say about just like having um, working in a place that supports like supports you and I think that really goes along with having good boundaries Mm-hmm. absolutely yeah and being able to understand that Social workers, a lot of times, are very much defined by what we do because our work is about people and about helping and supporting and walking alongside people. And so it can become more of our identity. And And I've had to struggle through that and figure out, okay, this is, a, this is what I do, but there's other aspects of who I am and I need to really pour into those other aspects of who I am if I want to continue to do this work. So mm-hmm. it's it's been a learning process for sure. Awesome. Um, I want to ask you a kind of a similar question, but a little bit different. Um, If somebody is listening and they heard um, you describe social work and maybe the um, mental health component of it, and they're like, huh, this is something that's interesting to me. Um, I want to learn more about this. What would you uh, suggest as next steps for someone who's hearing about this and really connecting with a lot of these things? What would you suggest as some next steps? I would say try to connect with a social worker, somebody who is doing this work and ask them out for coffee or be able Mm -hmm. to talk with them about what their day-to-day looks like and and kind of what their story was. I would say be exposed to different types of social work and social workers um, because there's such a variety in terms of the fields that you can take. Um, I would say also being a, being really aware of what your motivation in going into the field. What What is your motivation? Why do you want to do this work? I think that's something that you grow in and that you learn as you do it. You don't have to have that figured out before you make your decision. I definitely didn't. It's something that I've um, been learning about myself throughout my career. But mm-hmm. I do think it's important to, to have some initial thoughts of why would I want to do this? What, what part of me really would benefit from this or would be fed by this. So doing some soul searching is definitely, I think, a part of of the work and then connecting with people who are doing the work and just hearing to see if what they're saying interests you and and grabs your attention. Um, Those would be a few things that come to mind. Awesome. Thank you. That's those are some good jumping off points. Um, do you have something that you, uh, wish you had known before you had started out on this journey, or maybe it could have been something that you did hear from somebody, but you just didn't hear loud enough, Mm -hmm. I guess. Um, is there anything you wish you had known, um, as you had started off? So that's a really good question. And, and I actually, I'm teaching in a master's program at Loyola University now, and I, I'm finding that I'm saying this to my students a lot. And so I think this is 
um, it relates. But this idea of being a, being sure that you are getting into this field and that you want to do this field, not because you think you have the answers, but because you know that you can support people in finding their own answers. Mm. I think that's something that I I didn't realize. I think I, I saw social work from a very kind of charity model standpoint when I was younger. And now that I've been in the field for, for longer, I'm realizing that that doesn't help anybody. It, it, that, that charity model really is about making the person who's helping feel better about themselves. And, and that's ultimately, I think, really selfish. And, and it doesn't really help people. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think being able to, to sit with what your motivation is, why you're doing this, but then realize too that it's not because you have the answers or you have what's um, needed, but that you can facilitate the space for people and you can provide the safety for people to figure that out for themselves. That's that's really what I've learned in terms of what counseling is and therapy is. And and yeah, I went to school and I studied and I have my license and I have a lot of knowledge and experience and 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 I. I'm grateful for that, but I think recognizing that um, people have um, a lot of strengths, that people have so much resilience, and that people have so much to teach you about who they are, and that they don't need people just telling them what to do, but they need people to listen and to support them. That's what I I think I would remind people and and just make sure people understand is is a key way to posture yourself in, in, in this work. I think that the way that you'll find this work to be more fulfilling and and that you will really be able to actually help more people by posturing yourself in that way. I really like how you said that um, about not being able to, or about not having to have all the answers, but being able to help people to facilitate so they can find the answer for themselves. Yeah, there's actually this concept, so it's called the common factors, and it's it's this idea, there, there's all these meta-analyses that have been done in trying to figure out what is it about therapy and counseling that works, and it's very much in line with like the psychodynamic type of counseling work, which is more of the, the type of work that I, I do and the theory that I, I follow, and what, what they've found time and time again is that these common factors are what are the things that are going to make this, um, re- this service successful for somebody, and they found that 85% of what makes the the idea of counseling um, successful is based on the relationship. It's mm-hmm. not based on you having the, the most up-to-date interventions and theories, although those are, of course, important and you need to know them, but it's mm-hmm. about you being able to be empathetic and establishing trust and establishing safety and have that person feel listened and heard and seen. And it, it, it's really about the relationship. It's about being able to, to provide a new type of relationship for that person. And so I, I love that because it's, it's, um, it's kind of the evidence to show that you, you don't go into this field because you know a lot, but you go into this field because you want to establish relationships with people and you, you're interested in people and who they are and, and in encouraging them and who they are. So I, I, I just, I keep that in mind uh, whenever I'm, I'm thinking and giving advice to people about the field. That's awesome. And what you're describing right now sounds like what you were saying at the beginning of the interview of what you were looking for in a career path and passion about wanting to connect with people and help people. 
That's right. Yeah, I, I am really grateful that I've I kind of came full circle and and was able to and have been able to fulfill that that passion and that um, idea that I had so long ago, even though I had no idea what <laughs> that needed to look like or what that would look like. I, I feel really grateful that I've been um, guided down this path and that I've gotten the, the opportunity and the chance to do this work. Um, all right. I just have a few more questions for you. Um, what, uh, were there any resources that kind of helped you on your journey that could either be people or books or maybe a movie or, um, I don't know, experience that, um, you've, you feel like helped you throughout your journey in this passion? I definitely would say people. I think that's maybe it's because <laughs> it's my preferred way of connecting, but I I think asking people and 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 having people guide you and tell you about their experiences that has been um the, the most helpful for me finding mentors, being able to I'm also a verbal processor and so being able to talk it out with people and and hear their perspectives, but then also kind of weigh pros and cons. I would say that um that was, is definitely helpful. I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, I, I think my growing up in, in, in the Salvation Army was a huge influence for me in wanting to do social work. And I got to be exposed to a lot of people who knew about social work and that were practicing it in their daily lives. And so that definitely was a big part of it for me is being able to connect to people who were doing this already and, and seeing, um, and asking them specific questions about what it looked like. But I, I can't think of any specific books or, or videos. Um, but I would just say, yeah, relationships and, and asking people and being exposed to work. I would say also volunteering, I think, is a really a big way of doing that. Being able to um, just kind of find different organizations who are looking for volunteers and, and giving some time and seeing how you connect. I We just had a special speaker come to our class from World Relief, which is an agency that helps to resettle refugees here in the Chicago land area, and they take volunteers. I would think that if people are interested in working with either immigrants or refugees or people who come from different places around the world, I would definitely encourage you to look into that um, and, and being able to, to have just real experiences, uh, I think is, is really helpful. Awesome. Um, is there anything that I missed asking you that I should have asked or something, something else that you want to share that, or that you think I missed? I don't think so. I can't think of, of anything at the moment. Um, so no, I think you did a great job. Thank you. (laughs) All right, I have one final question for you, and that is um, a question that we ask everybody on the podcast, and that is, what is fueling you today? What's fueling your passion? So this could be anything from a new coffee drink, a new book, a new Mm -hmm. friend. Um, So what's fueling you today? So I would say two things come to mind. Essential oils is definitely one of them. I have one right here. And, she uh, she does. She's holding it up. <laughs> um, just finding different scents and using them for um, to relax and to calm myself is definitely something that has been really fun for me. And then lately, I have just been loving the uh, a new musician. His name is Vicente Garcia, and he's from the Dominican Republic. Ooh. And he. Um, 
uh, is coming up a lot in my playlist on Spotify. And every time one of the songs comes out, I just, I feel full of life and excitement. And I would encourage people to look them up. All right. We'll give Vicente a little listen on Spotify. <laughs> Specifically the song Dulcito de Coco. Awesome. <laughs> Very cool. We'll have to check that out. Um, all right. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for your time and just sharing with us your story and your passion. You are so welcome, Audrey. Thank you for having me. It's been it's been a pleasure um, sharing with you tonight. Friends, I loved our conversation with Lindsay. It was so great to hear Lindsay's story of how she found what she really enjoyed and was passionate about and how she was able to take her passions of working with and helping people in combination with working with migrant and displaced people to become a social worker in the mental health field. I hope that you were all encouraged today through Lindsay's story and her passions. My prayer is that you consider what God has for you and what he might be leading you to. Our episode today was actually edited by me and our social media is managed by Olivia Bote. You can see our show notes for our music credits. <laughs>